Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the European Council on Foreign Relations podcast on the ideas, policies and trends that will shape the world. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm director of ECFR and I'm presenting a special issue of our podcast on the foreign policy scorecard, which has just come out. This is the moment that Europe's foreign policy community has been waiting for. How did Europe deal with the crisis in Ukraine? How did it fare in its response to ISIS? Who were the leaders? Who were the slackers? After weeks of anticipation, the results have come out and the Twitter sphere has been ablaze with ministers proclaiming their successes and others contesting them. My favourite exchange was a mini spat between the French ambassador to the United States and the German ambassador to the United Nations, but we have more on that later. I'm pleased to be joined today by Susie Dennison, who's the mastermind of our scorecard, Kadri League from our Wider Europe programme, and Nacho Torreblanca from our Madrid office and our programme on reinvention of Europe. So um, we're going to cover three main topics. First, look at the general messages from the scorecard. Then we're going to delve more deeply into the big questions to do with Russia and Ukraine and the future of European order. And finally, look at who the runners and riders were in the European Union in 2014 and how well Europe will hold together faced with the big foreign policy challenges that it has in 2015. So, Susie, do you want to kick off and tell us what the main lessons of the 2015 scorecard are? Well, the main story across all of the regions which the scorecard looked at um, was was obviously um, uh, was obviously Russia with um, Europe's response to um, annexation of Crimea um, impacting on almost everything. Um, this uh, this this reverberated not just across um, what we refer to in the scorecard as wider Europe um, throughout the eastern neighbourhoods um, with Russian balancing in the Balkans, um, but also beyond. But perhaps the big surprise this year um, was that in relation to the Middle East, um, North Africa and and beyond to China, um, the surprise was that Russia chose not to make things more difficult for the EU than they, than they already were. Um, we saw, for, examples, uh, for, for example, the Iran talks um, staying roughly on track, although not finishing the year in such a positive position um, to, to, to be finished in 2013. Um, and we also saw um, uh, P- that Putin chose not to make um, the EU's decisions about the already fiendish complicated, fiendishly complicated challenge of um, ISIS and the civil war in Syria, um, even even worse for Europe than it war- already was. Um, really, the story in the Middle East this year um, was 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 of the um, European Union Union's relative powerlessness to influence in the face of um, orchestration of events by Gulf, Iran, and Turkey. So, Susan, do you want to go into a bit more detail on this? Because in the scorecard, we look at we give grades to the different topics, looking at unity, resources, outcomes. And in this, you have lists of the, the top. Why don't you tell us about what, what the top five policies were in 2014 and also what, what maybe the bottom five were? Where was Europe most divided and under-resourced and had the worst outcomes? Well, the, for, for, for the top, um, the top policies, um, the 
as, as I've mentioned, the um, European response to um, Russian aggression, the, in particular coming together around the sanctions policy um, in the second half of the year, um, is, is, is one of the policies that we've rated right at the top, um, given it an A-, minus, um, with five um, out of five for unity and for resources. Um, and um, also an outcome uh, relatively high mark, because uh, we are seeing um, that that's, um, that policy is, um, is, is bearing fruit in terms of um, its economic impact. Um, the challenge for, uh, for 2015 will obviously be um, that um, that uh, uh, that's also having an impact at home within European states. So not 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 only do we need to wait and see whether um, uh, these sanctions change uh, Putin's political calculations, we also need to see whether or not European states will stand by it as the going gets tougher. Um, the, the other high-scoring components this year were um, relations with the US um, on Iran and weapons proliferation, where the, um, uh, where the E3 um, remained a very important um, part of the talks, and Catherine Ashton in particular, um, in her chairing role there, um, kept, kept them roughly on track. Um, and then um, we also saw um, a number of policies um, in relation to the eastern neighbourhood um, in terms of how uh, the EU chose to handle visa liberalisation um, uh, and energy questions um, um, emerging quite well. Um, moving quickly to um, uh, the, the bottom policies, I think what is, um, what is quite interesting here is... Um, that um, they all sort of group quite broadly around um, themes which have major implications for European security and for some of the challenges that we're facing um, within the EU now um, in terms of um, uh, tackling the, the, the threat of terrorism, terrorism, integration of communities and so on. Regional security in MENA, uh, response to um, the immigration crisis in the Mediterranean where we saw um, uh, the transition from Mare Nostrum um, so and rescue operations in um, in, in the Mediterranean um, ending, um, and uh, what it was replaced by um, being um, even less adequate um, than the previous search and rescue operation was in terms of handling um, the the number of um, uh, the number of people choosing to um, to come to Europe by boat and um, risking their lives in doing so. Um, also, um, Syria and Iraq, Libya. Um, uh, Europe's approach to the Sudan's DRC and CAR, these are all featuring um, very high in, 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 the, in the bottom policies um, that the scorecard marked this year, um, with um, all with major implications for, um, for, for the challenges which Europe faces in 2015, um, as the shocking attacks in Paris um, in, at the beginning of, the, of last month um, showed us, um, there are real challenges um, for, 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 for Europe in terms of, of, of how it deals with the way these policies all come together. Thanks, Susie, for going into so much uh, detail. So we're going to come to Russia and the wider European neighbourhood uh, a bit later, and Kadri, I'm going to ask you lots of questions about that. But um, looks like we've done rather less well uh, when it comes to the southern dimension. Nacho, how, how do you feel? Do you think this is a kind of fair description that we've done very well um, in 2014 at dealing with, with Ukraine, but have been hopelessly inadequate when it comes to the southern yeah. neighbourhood. Does that mean that Spanish people feel very insecure at the moment? Well, I mean, I, I don't think that it is because of the direct repercussions which insecurity in the region may have or not on, on Spain. But the truth is that um, when, when you go back to 2011 and, and you see the beginning of the Arab Spring and all the things that we said at the time, 
um, as to uh, we've learned from our past mistakes. Uh, we will never again sacrifice uh, democracy for security. We've got the message. We will always be behind those people and, and, and don't confront them with false choices, choices between Islamism and authoritarianism. That's quite amazing because it looks like ancient history, but, uh, but it's just like, you know, four years ago, uh, we, we were getting the right lessons uh, and promising sort of a never again. Uh, the EU did, I think, an extraordinary job, at least on paper, to apologize and to revise those policies. But the truth, uh, when you now open your newspaper, uh, is that it, it's, it's, it's quite surrealistic to think that we said all those things in 2011 and that the Arab Spring uh, actually happened. Uh, you know, we have Mubarak uh, almost, you know, being set free and, and another general in Egypt and the whole of the region. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it's a pretty disaster with the, with the sole exceptions of, of those places, um, the Maghreb, Morocco, Tunisia and Algeria, which have managed to escape from that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge disaster, uh, whether we are fully responsible for that or we could have done different. This is uh, maybe uh, another question. But I think that we're not even, as the scorecard shows, we're not even picking up the pieces um, from and, and trying to, to, to contain at least the worst ex ex effects when it comes to immigration and refugees um so so it's not only on on action but even on reaction we are we, we i don't think we've been good enough so you, often you accuse uh foreign policy establishments of being reactive to events uh i don't know what you think but i'd love the eu being reactive to in in this occasion because i don't even see it there, there. thanks Nacho. so i think we should now turn to the the big uh, geopolitical earthquake which erupted in 2014 which was the whole well the annexation of Crimea and the, the after effects of that um, Katri you were one of the main people responsible for that chapter of the scorecard um, and it is both uh, an area where the EU had to deal with a, a huge kind of change, but also in terms of the scores, Europe seems to be, have done better on that than on many other issues. I mean, how, how do you account for what happened and for the European response <coughs> so far? As you can read in the scorecard, uh, Europe got its act together in midsummer after the plane crash in, in July. Uh, before that, in the early months of the year, Europe was pretty helpless uh, when it was expected to deal with or have a reaction to the Maidan protests in Kiev that got ever bloodier, and all Europe could do was to issue statements of concern that had no effect whatsoever. At the same time, um, it would have been hard also to do something meaningful, given the nature of Yanukovych's regime. He didn't have any exit strategy, as we can see afterwards. Uh, and that made him hard partner also for Putin. So in the end, all diplomacy with Yanukovych, be it ours or Moscow's, failed. So you cannot blame European Union too harsh, uh, too harshly. But even so, it was not mm, nice. But in July, after the plane crash, MH17, Europe actually got a clearer view of events and introduced much more powerful sanctions than it had done so far and stuck to them. 
Uh, yet again, it's somewhat embarrassing that it took a plane crash because plane crash was not an intended thing. It was an accident. And uh, Russia and uh, rebels helped by Russia were killing Ukrainians and vice versa in mass already before that. But it took Western lives to get us reacting. So here I echo Natch's previous statements about Muslims being killed. Uh, and, and Western victims getting the coverage. It was a little bit same story here, which is embarrassing. But at least we uh, got our policy clear, we stuck to the sanctions, and when we were writing the scorecard, we thought that the consensus around sanctions might crumble in the new year. Now it actually looks like consensus around sanctions is there to stay, but the debate that is splitting Europe right now at least is about arming Ukraine. There are countries that are in favor of arming, and in the United States there are very strong voices in favor. At the same time, there are other countries uh, that are against, and, and sometimes the debate goes inside the countries themselves, such as Germany. Uh, I read that Angela Merkel is against arming Ukraine, but Wolfgang Geschinger yet again has just published a piece in, in, in favor. And So, Nacho, how... how um much do you think it was a moment of unity as opposed to the beginnings of a real strategic awakening amongst Europeans and an ability to deal with this because it is striking how much was possible after the plane crash but will memories of the plane crash recede and Europeans then come out again and, and say that maybe we should cancel the sanctions and start engaging well I think the nature of uh, of the Russian threat or challenge, whichever words you want to pick, has now become evident for a lot of people. Um, and this is not easy to change. So it is not that you can remove, uh, even if it was an accident, as Kadri said, that you can remove this. Because actually, I think that accident and the subsequent actions by the Russians have revealed what are the true intentions um, of the regime in, in Moscow and Putin. Um, I think much as, as Merkel and Germany have turned uh, and, and at some point maybe you know, intellectually uh, she crossed the Rubicon um, deciding that, um, that you would not um, it was not. I mean, you would not get into into an agreement, and you would not solve these problems just by sitting and having a long conversation with Putin. That this was not a misunderstanding, um, as 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 Merkel discovered in her meeting in Brisbane with with Putin after two hours in Russian in and in German because both of you know are able to speak face to face with uh, without interpreters. If after two hours you still are you still where where you are, it means that there's not a misunderstanding that is going around, but you have a completely different and fundamentally different visions of the world, That's, your interests, values, and so on. Right. That is true, but I mean, one of the the challenges for the sanctions is that to change them now you need um, unanimity, but when it comes to uh, renewing them particularly the, the tough ones uh, which need to be renewed in July, a single member state can block them from going forward. And we've already seen that the new Greek government uh, has maybe got a slightly different view of Russia, at least from, from this yeah. new European mainstream. And they weren't around when the sanctions yeah. were imposed last year. So they might not feel the same amount of responsibility yeah. towards that. Yeah, no, you're right that when, when we translate this to this into governance arrangements and the way the EU works, it, it is much more messy. But I would say that uh, even in Spain, which is a country which is uh, which has always 
people have always hold a vision of Russia, uh, which is completely different of probably what you see in Eastern Europe and also in, in Britain. Uh, people know what, what this is about, what this game is about, uh, and they very clearly see the nature of the threat and that it has to be contained and that sanctions will have to continue because all the other options are much worse. You're right also on, 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 on sanctions in Greece and so on, but... Um, but that would only happen if it's part of a, if it's not part of a of a of a larger deal. I don't think Greece can stand the pressure uh, of being isolated uh, on this because uh, there are more fundamental things at um, at stake, and you know you can raise trouble uh, on one area, but not necessarily on all across the table unless you want to use it tactically. But uh, that, that- but Greece. I mean that, yeah, naturally. I, I, we're going to ask Susie in a second to tell us about uh, this whole question about who the leaders and the slackers are, and who's going to block, who's been blocking different issues, and, and where the different member states are. But maybe before I come to you, Susie, you have a last word from from Kadri on on Russia and wider Europe. What do you think the the big challenges are going to be uh, going forward into twenty fifteen? Well, I think the actual challenge now is to devise a long-term strategy because uh, it's increasingly evident that we are in for long haul. Uh, The sanctions policy until uh, January was basically designed to pressure Russia to accept a face-saving solution in eastern Ukraine, basically to follow Minsk agreement that Russia had signed. That would not have been the best thing for Ukraine, but something Ukraine could have lived with and offered a solution to the conflict, a reasonably normal solution. Not ideal, but quite okay. Uh, Now Russia has shown that it doesn't want to take a face-saving solution, even while it is suffering from sanctions. And it is determined to get its goals, which I think is still control over Kiev's future policies. And Ukraine, uh, Moscow maintains reasonable flexibility in pursuing its goals. It can upgrade its military pressure, downgrade, etc. So we, we need to be prepared for a long standoff and we need to build up new credibility. I think that is also necessary to stress we have had sanctions in place for a little bit more than six months, the really serious ones. Uh, less serious ones will soon be a year old. This is not sufficient time to impress Moscow and to make Moscow understand that some sort of ethical principle actually figures in European policy vis-à-vis Moscow and the Eastern neighborhood. And as scorecard also points out, this sort of thing is necessary because had we had that type of credibility last spring, then maybe our phone calls to the Kremlin on the eve of Crimea annexation would have borne fruit. There were many phone calls after Yanukovych fell in Ukraine, many phone calls to Moscow. I do not know the exact content of them, but basically they all told Moscow not to intervene and they were not listened to. I, I think we need to improve that. In any case, it is it is a hard year, but yet again, to emphasize Germany as, as leader of European foreign policy, I think they are doing a really good job, especially Angela Merkel. Maybe the policies are not yet bearing the sort of fruit we would like to see, and she would like to see, but she is definitely, I think, informed by right considerations. Well, that's the perfect link to this question about who's leading Europe, who's slacking. And in the past, there's been quite a... Uh, fight for the top of the leader table, particularly between Britain, France and Germany. But this year, that 
contest seems to have been resolved rather dramatically and Germany's way up ahead of the others. Um, do you want to tell us uh, who the runners and riders are and, and how the different member states uh, did and what issues they were leading on, Susie? Yeah, I mean, um, as, as you were just saying, um, the, the German leadership story does map quite um, clearly onto um, the responding to Russia story um, as well. And um, uh, Russia, uh, Germany's uh, 17 leadership rankings, um, many of them are um, uh, in relation to European policy towards Russia, wider Europe, um, uh, and energy questions and so on. It's, it, it's not exclusively the case that German lead, Germany showed leadership this year on um, questions relating to Russia and, and, and um, the Eastern neighbourhood. Um, in fact, this year they're rated a leader at least once um, in every chapter that the scorecard looks at, so covering all regions and um, multilateral and crisis management questions. Um, uh, the other um, people at the top of the leaderboard, um, uh, the UK, interestingly, is um, is in second place um, again this year, um, but jointly with Sweden. And I think both parts of that um, second place are interesting. Um, UK um, this year has seen um, debate on whether it even wants to be part of the EU uh, reach uh, fever pitch. But in fact, at working level, it, con it continues to be um, almost European in spite of itself, um, in engaging constructively. Um, again uh, across the whole spectrum of, of different areas of foreign policy some of which like um, uh, like TTIP um, uh, negotiations uh, pertain uh, to, to, to the areas where um, sort of economic questions, um, trade questions where um, the government of the UK has been clear that um, they, they, they see a benefit of being in Europe but but not only there are other there are other areas um, which 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 go um, against the, the the rhetoric that we're hearing at the moment in London, Sweden, um, uh, not one of the the big three member states, um, but um, uh, it has been consistently ranked a leader um, in in the scorecard this year. It has eleven rankings, um, and it has ver a very distinctive brokerage um, uh, style of leadership um, through through activist diplomacy. It's not um, like um, the UK. France, which I will come on to, which um, uh, have an, uh, quite a characteristic um, of uh, trailblazer leadership, for example, in relation to um, trying to halt the advance of um, the Islamic State, uh, where decisions are uh, sometimes taken relatively unilaterally. Sweden really does seem to operate at the centre of European decision making. France, as I mentioned, um, is up there in the top of the leaderboard, but last last year um, was, um, was in first place. This year it's in third place, and it's gone down to um, eight leader rankings. Um, I think what's interesting um, about France is that this isn't, it doesn't seem to really confirm a, a move away from European decision making, um, but it does seem to uh, confirm a move away from um, coalition building, uh, playing that sort of central type role that I was describing for Sweden, and a transition um, to, to, to clear preference for, um, uh, for a type of leadership um, which, uh, which, which follows France's strategic interests. I'm thinking here of um, uh, its, uh, its decision um, to, um, to intervene in the Central African Republic, um, where um, it, it, it effectively took a decision um, and, and others followed. Um, uh, 
so um so so i think um w what we're not saying is that france doesn't lead anymore but we've seen a clear you, kind you of seem to be saying they're not getting any followers anymore though which is quite, <laughs> it's quite a dramatic um... <laughs> well we've always said um with this exercise that um a europe which only had um either um trailblazer leaders or uh broker leaders uh, wouldn't be nearly as effective it does take all sorts um uh but i think um yes the difference that we see with germany this year is that it's displaying all of those different kinds of leadership um, whereas we see the, uh, the others at the top of the leaderboard kind of retreating into more distinctive styles of leaders, leadership. Okay. Um, and, and maybe just to mention as well that um, the states which really saw themselves um, on the front line in terms of the Russia challenge this year, um, Poland and um, the Baltic states, um, uh, also uh, feature very high on the leaderboard in, in, in fourth and fifth place um, uh, with the Baltics um, grouped together in fifth place um, and I think um, that um, speaks very strongly um, to, uh, to the story which has really shaped um, uh, Europe's foreign policy this year. So we're, we're running out of time on this, but maybe you could also tell us who the biggest wreckers of European foreign policy yeah. were. So the top of the slacker board is Malta. Um, uh, Little Malta, who knew that, that, that such that a small country could be so destructive? So what did they block? Um, well, Malta is um, is a, a top sl top slacker. But before I tell you what they blocked, I think it's worth saying that for all of those at the top of the slacker board this year, we've we've seen a real drop in the number of times which states are slacking. It seems like um, states are kind of choosing to um, to block on important dossiers, um, but not. Um, I, I don't think we should read the top of the slacker board as a as a group of wreckers per se. Um, but what uh, some of the common themes that um, that are there for almost all of those at the top of the slacker board. Um, are um, a different view um, uh, about how uh, uh, about how European states should respond to um, the Snowden debacle of um, of 2013, um, and, and whether or not there should be a European policy in terms of um, uh, privacy and intelligence. Um, also, um, the question of how to challenge um, other major powers, notably Russia and China, on human rights questions, um, and um, on, on um, among the the leader slackers, the, the the question of press freedom in Russia. Um, is really one where um, a, a group of member states really seem to have felt that this this wasn't the year um, uh, in which Europe was likely to have any influence on that whatsoever. Okay, so the big question, I suppose, looking into 2015 is whether these large levels of European unity that we saw during the crisis on, on Ukraine um, and Russia are going to continue or whether we're in for a really choppy year. And I think a lot of that will depend partly on, on the elections in different countries. I mean, we've spoken a bit about the new Greek government. But Nacho, you're writing a book about Podemos in Spain, who might very well be in government before the end of the year. I mean, do we think that domestic politics is going to make it more or less difficult to stay together and to have an effective European foreign policy? Um, it is too early to, um, uh, to, to, to make a conclusive statement about how the future uh, will look like. First, because Podemos is untested. They did very well in the European elections, but this was just 8% of the vote. Now polls are, are putting them almost at 30%, 28% being the second political force. But uh, what we know is that people expressing... Uh, preferences for Podemos, they're, they're using this vote also to send a strong message to uh, established parties as to the need for them to change uh, both the discourse and leaders. Tomorrow, I think uh, anything could happen. 
But um, I think these successive elections would give the time and the space for both parties and voters to adjust uh, their preferences, their leader, their strategy. So it's going to be an interesting year. But uh, what we know for sure, and I think uh, even if Podemos is a bit of a bubble, um, it is it is likely to stay at at least 20% of the vote, which will set them on pair with uh, what other populist forces across Europe have been able to uh, to reach. So in in that sense, Podemos is no different from UKIP, from National, or or other parties. I mean, not necessarily in the ideology, but in the capacity to 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 smash into traditional party systems and and, and carve a place, stay there, and from there condition uh, politics. So that brings us to the final segment of the podcast, which is the the bookshelf, uh, where we will talk about what we've been reading. Um, Kadri, I can see you brought a book along. What what are you reading at the moment? Yes. um, The book is The Limits of Partnership by Angela Stent. It's about US-Russian relations in the 21st century. It's not entirely new. I think Angela gave it to me uh, at Munich conference last year, and now we are off to Munich again tomorrow. So it's more than a year old, and it doesn't cover annexation of Crimea. But it it covers U.S.-Russian relations under free presidents, and um, yeah, free from both sides. Even Russia has had free presidents during that time. And I'm reading it trying to find out how uh, and why did we end up where we are. To what extent uh, we are dealing with fundamental differences, to what extent there are communication failures. My own theory is that uh, fundamental differences are there, but communication failures make them more dangerous. But I'm looking for confirmation from Angela. What about you, Susie? What are you reading at the moment? Um, well, I'm playing catch up um, on something I meant to read at, um, in the first half of last year, and um, as, as well, um, I'm reading um, European Spring by Philippe Legrand. Um, and so, although I'm a bit out of date on that one, it, is, it does actually make quite interesting reading, um, given um, the the success of the new government in Greece um, uh, in 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 challenging the idea that austerity is the only answer um, uh, for for the for the economic crisis that um, we're hopefully emerging from. Um, and, um, and 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 yeah, it's um, it, it remains quite relevant, I think. And the, the book uh, I am I'm reading is called On Populist Reason by Ernesto Laclau. He was uh, one of the disciples of Eric Hobsbawm and was professor um, in, in in the UK. And and he did a book uh, in which he put together a sort of a leftist view of populism, which had always uh, traditionally been appropriated by the right. And he's an Argentinian who was able to build on the experience of uh, General Perón, but also, you know, put in insights of both uh, classical Leninism and Gramsci and Italian Communist Party. And he is the theoretical foundation of Podemos Party in Spain and the idea that the left uh, had long time ago forgotten how to be popular and that, that this was only something which the right uh, knew how to do it. And as you see, you know, Podemos has been quite powerful on this idea of, of, of rediscovering the populist emotion and turning it, it into um, an, an, an electoral uh, machine. Wow, sounds like a fascinating book. And uh, essential reading if anyone wants to understand European politics at the moment. So I've been reading some books, but 
given the state of the world at the moment, I think it might be more appropriate to mention some tweets as my on my bookshelf at the moment. And something I mentioned in the intro before, there's a wonderful exchange between the French ambassador to the United States and the German ambassador to the United Nations about our scorecard. So um, I, I'll, why don't I tell you about that? So the French ambassador proudly tweeted that the hourly productivity of the French worker is the sixth in the world ahead of Germany and the UK. And the German <laughs> ambassador responded with a tweet saying, Félicitations, but watch out, we're on your heels. World Cup first and now first place in ECFR's ranking on European foreign policy. To which uh, the French ambassador responded, German foreign policy, best in Europe. <laughs> Delighted and interested to read these great news. Thank you. Congratulations. And then later on, I uh, went on to say, sarcasm? What does this word mean? A Frenchman is never sarcastic. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, that's what I've been reading uh, in, in recent days. And it's just one of many, many dozens of tweets by European ministers and diplomats about the, the foreign policy scorecard. So um, I, I don't know how many people read it, but we're certainly being read by uh, those who are shaping European foreign policy and hopefully uh, will have a positive impact on what they do in 2015. That was The World in 30 Minutes, uh, the podcast from ECFR. There are links to all the things that we mentioned on our website, www.ecfr.eu, as well as lots of other great material and the scorecard itself. So you can check out how Europe did on all 63 of the different components, as well as how your country ranked in the annual rankings of European foreign policy. The producer of ECFR's podcast is Katerina Botel. And we'll be back with a new podcast in two weeks. But for now, from me, Mark Leonard, from Kadri Leek, from Jose Ignacio Torrebranca and Susie Dennison, it's goodbye for now.